Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. Election Day is just a month away. This week, we focus on election integrity and the narrative that the last election was stolen. For two years, social media and the political world have been flooded with messages that the 2020 election was stolen or there was widespread fraud. Despite the fact that multiple lawsuits and investigations have never been able to prove that, the rhetoric continues. To find out how all of that messaging works, we spoke with Dr. Kate Kensky, a political communications specialist at the University of Arizona. We started our conversation talking about why this narrative has lasted so long as it has. Well, I think it's, it's a confluence of factors. I think, first, at the outset, it's important to recognize that there is a notable percentage of the American public that doesn't buy into the idea that Biden was legitimately elected. And so it varies by polls, but if you look at polls over the past year or so, um, it comes down to about 58% of the, of the people in the United States who are adults you know, believe that he was legitimately elected. And of course, that leaves us a remaining notable percentage. A lot of that is driven by party. And so that we, we see that if you're a Democrat, somewhere between 90 and 97% of Democrats believe that Biden was legitimately elected. But if you go to the other side, again, depending on the poll and the time, anywhere between 21 and 39% of Republicans believe that he was legitimately elected. And so we have you know, people who are disgruntled over the outcome, they're unhappy. I think that the reason why we see this you know, you know, proliferate is we live in different media spheres. And so we often hear the term echo chamber, and I think that very much applies here. Different streams of media sources focus on the story in different ways or you know, do or do not focus on the story at all. There's a lot of media outlets that feel it was a resolved issue, they're done. They're not talking about it anymore. There's others that are still you know, catering in a sense to what their audience wants more information about, and that would be continuing questions about whether or not the election was stolen. This seems in some ways a new era in communications and watching this narrative move forward. Is it because we have changed media outlets? We have social media, we have cable networks, we have networks that are just online. Is this the new world we're living in that this type of narrative because of the echo chamber can just continue? Absolutely, that, that's a large part of it. Um, I will say that it's important to recognize that the echo chambers we live in, and I would say most people do live in an echo chamber of sorts, they might not recognize that they live in an echo chamber because they feel like they're hearing things from different sources. And most of us do incidentally come across some information from the other side, but it's not balanced and we fail to, to recognize that balance. Through the proliferation of social media, we can in large part cultivate you know, a sense of community around the ideas that we happen to believe. And so we can choose, sometimes consciously, sometimes not as consciously, choose those ideas that resonate with what we want to believe. Again, you study political communications. Politicians must know this. Are we going to see a change in the way they communicate as a result of the success of this narrative within a large segment of the population? Absolutely, and I think that we're, we're seeing some of that. I think that 
I would say going back, you know, even I know that we like to hinge a lot of things on Trump, but you know, even before that, um, we saw a change in the way that politics, you know, was covered by different reporters, and we saw politicians changing how much access they gave to, um, you know, what would have been, you know, mainstream media as they saw fit, and that has only extended to the extent that the number of outlets has proliferated during that time. Sure, we saw when President Obama was elected, everybody heralded him as the first social media president. His campaign was the one, based on timing, that really used social media successfully for the first time. You know, he, he very much did. And, you know, you can cultivate your audience, you know, through that, that social media. I think it's also important to recognize, again, that sometimes people do get information from the other side, but there is a difference between listening so that you can gather information because you want to argue it versus listening to understand. And a lot of times I think that listening to understand is often missing from people across the political spectrum. For politicians or professional communicators who want to either break this narrative or whatever the next narrative is that comes up, because of the echo chambers, can narratives be broken now? I think that still remains to be seen. I think that what's impressive and not necessarily a positive way about the current situation is that we've had congressional hearings on the topic. Those hearings garnered about 18 million viewers. You know, listening to them consistently about you know the January 6th and you know what that meant, um, and yet we still have a very strong narrative. One of the powers that media have is to prime certain issues over others. And so sometimes they shape the way we act and the way we decide to vote, not by telling us something that we don't adopt, but by focusing on certain issues over others. And in this case, it's really hard to break a narrative when there's an audience that wants to hear about it because media are financially driven, right? And it's hard to break that, so they cover it and it makes it really hard to, to respond. The other thing I should add is that a lot of people have a hard time distinguishing between facts and opinions. We do try to teach this uh, in our you know, education system. You make a claim, that doesn't make the claim true. We need evidence behind it. But because we turn to different sources, what we consider evidence to, to believe or not believe those claims can be very different. You talk about teaching. Is there a an age gap here, those of us who have earned our gray hair versus the students here on the campus of the University of Arizona, do they get these facts differently, these different groups? I would say they do, but I would say the problem that we're facing really is more general. I think that there's a human proclivity to want to believe that which favors your side there is a proclivity to want to discount the other side when it doesn't go your way. That's human. And so now we have a wide variety of media. We get to choose where we consume our information. There isn't that, you know, with the public square where we meet, where we can debate out facts together. And as a result, we're being trained to basically stay in those echo chambers. Dr. Kate Kensky, thanks for spending some time with us. Thank you. That was Dr. Kate Kensky from the University of Arizona. Questions about the integrity of the election are not limited to just candidates for political office. They were also part of the discussion this year in the state legislature. 
AZPM's Andrew Oxford covers the legislature, so we sat down to talk about what happened during the session and what that means for the election. The first topic, how new laws from this year's legislature will lead to more recounts. And I should be clear, we're talking about recounts, not audits, the things that are, are standard practice in counties after each election. Recounts in Arizona, we don't tend to have a lot of because Arizona law is very particular about when a recount is triggered. It depends on the race, but in a race for a legislature, for example, under old laws, there would only be a recount triggered if two candidates are within 50 votes. When you consider how many votes can be cast in a race like this, that's not many, that's a really close margin. So the legislature passed a law this year that changes that margin to say that a recount is triggered if two candidates are within half of one percentage point. Which obviously is more than 50 votes, so we're probably going to get more recounts as a result. What was the legislature's thinking in making this change? This was sponsored by Senator Michelle Ugenti Rita, who's a Republican from Scottsdale, and she argued that this would really help improve voter confidence, uh, ensuring that there was a second look at races that are closer, especially this being a swing state where you do see a lot of really high stakes and hard fought races that do get very close. Counties, though, have raised concerns about this. It's, it's not necessarily a, a cut and dry matter. Election officials are concerned that by changing this margin, having more recounts, it's going to put a lot more work on counties, on election officials, departments that aren't necessarily well resourced to begin with, and could also mean that we actually have to wait longer before we have a, a resolution to elections. I was going to ask you about that. Those of us who watch elections in Arizona, we're used to ne necessarily knowing the results on election night. It takes time. This sounds like this could really stretch things out. What's the timetable for a recount? We haven't had a, a statewide recount since I, I think it was about 2010, right? I think there was an initiative measure that went back that was recounted. And granted, that was statewide, but it took between a week or two. And it, like I said, it was costly. Counties are concerned that they have to do more of this work. It could add to the logistics of putting on an election in the first place. Now, you mentioned when we started this, we're talking about recounts, not audits. Just so people understand, audits are already in the law, and we're not necessarily talking about the audit that the state Senate ordered for the last election, but walk us through a little bit some of the audit laws that already exist. Sure, so after an election, county officials will get together with representatives from the different parties, and do a sort of sampling of the ballots, an audit where they take a selection of the ballots cast and actually go over them by hand. With the recounts that I'm talking about, these automatically triggered recounts, this would not be by hand, this would be done, generally not by hand, this would mostly be done by putting the ballots back through machines. Not a sample, but rerunning the ballots. That's one of the big differences here. You said it was sponsored by Republican Michelle Ugenti Rita. Was this bipartisan when it passed, or was this one of those election bills that was strictly on party lines? There was some bipartisan support, but like I said, you also heard a lot from election administrators that pointed out that this could put a lot of extra work on a county departments that are not particularly well-resourced at the moment. Well, thanks for explaining what we will probably all be dealing with here very, very shortly. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. That was AZPM's Andrew Oxford. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week we're talking about election integrity and the narrative that the 2020 election was stolen. 
Bipartisan leaders in a number of states where that narrative is strong are coming together to try and drown out that noise. Former Arizona Democratic Congressman Ron Barber and Phoenix Republican Don Henninger are two of them. They're working with the Carter Center to clear the air. Barber started by telling us how, before this project, he considered himself retired from the political world. But then I got a call from the Carter Center in Georgia, Jimmy Carter's foundation, and they asked if I would head up, along with a Republican colleague, an effort in Arizona, initiative in Arizona, actually, that's in four states, Arizona, Georgia, Florida, and North Carolina. And the whole purpose is to put out accurate information, facts, that will push back on disinformation, misinformation, and outright lies about the election process. We're also very concerned about threats of violence and actual violence. We saw that in 2020, and we know that extremist groups are gearing up to do that in 2022. So our goal is to, with help of a lot of people in our network, to defend the accuracy, transparency, and safety of our election process, and also with help from, particularly from the religious community, faith leaders, to push back on political violence. Don, why get involved in this? You're a Republican. You've had a, a notable career in Phoenix. A lot of people up there know you. Why get involved with this? Well, plain and simple, I spent 35 years as a newspaper man. And as a journalist, one of the things that's primary of what you're all about is facts and accuracy and information. I'm also a community guy. I've been involved in our community for a long time, so I care about our community. So those two things combined, when I heard about the Carter Center opening and had a chance to talk to him about that, I said, this is right up my wheelhouse. As a journalist, as a community concerned person, this is exactly the kind of work that I'd like to do. And I wasn't, wasn't quite retired. I was retired from the newspaper business, but wasn't quite retired from life in Phoenix. But this was an initiative. As soon as I saw the opportunity for it, I said, I need to do this. So how do you two combat this narrative that the election was stolen, that there was widespread fraud, and all the things we've been hearing for two years? Well, first of all, a lot of that is just plain nonsense. And what we've done in, with Don working the northern part of our state and me working the southern part is recruit people across the political spectrum. We have political operatives, candidates, former elected officials across the range of political points of view. We have religious and faith leaders, which is an incredibly incredible group. We have business leaders, and we have people representing community nonprofits that are involved with planning and developing in our state. These are all now members of our network. We call it the Arizona Democracy Resilience Network, and they are helping us reach out to people in their networks to promote what we're trying to do, which is accuracy around the polling, pushing back on misinformation, as I said, making sure that the voices of the local elected officials are heard because they are credible people too, and to make sure that we do everything we can to prevent political violence. We've seen a lot of chatter on the internet amongst extremist groups in Arizona who are ready to rock and roll if certain candidates lose. And it's their right to protest, but it's not their right to commit acts of violence or threats of violence, which they did in 2020. We need trusted messengers uh, from all walks of life, and that's what we're building together. We probably have 150 people now of influence in our network. 
including a lot of faith leaders. And we need people who are willing to accept what the facts are and then within their own spheres of influence, be able to take this message forward and so we can tell people what's really going on. You both have mentioned faith leaders, not necessarily a group we always hear about in politics. Why the emphasis on faith leaders? Who is a more trusted messenger than your faith leader? If you're in a congregation or a temple or whatever, who do you really turn to for information? What we've discovered in building this faith network is the appetite amongst faith leaders for our cause is, is amazing. They really believe in what we're talking about because they realize that our democracy is in danger uh, and, and the bedrock of our communities are at stake here. And I thought they would be receptive, but they've been surprisingly receptive. They've helped us to deliver a faith statement that we aim to make public, maybe have a press conference and certainly get that out to the media that's coming from them about why this effort that we're putting forth is important. Yeah, faith leaders really do have credibility. And when we, we've done some polling and we've had focus groups and what we've learned in those activities is that it's the message is important, but almost more important is the messenger. If the messenger is someone you trust, is credible, and you're more likely to accept what they have to say. And in addition to all of this, we have developed five principles that we hope candidates will be guided by in their election campaigns. That's part of what we're trying to get out is we believe these things are necessary to restore our democratic norms because they've been shredded. Lots of people, not a majority, but lots of people don't trust the election process anymore because it's been so discredited by lies and outright misinformation. So what we're trying to do is say, these five principles should guide you and we want to make sure that we have a lot of people endorsing those principles in all four states. So what are the five principles? Well, I've got them in front of me. I want to make sure I got them right. The first is an honest process, which means we want candidates to cooperate with election officials, to adhere to the rules and regulations and refrain from knowingly propagating false information. We want a civil campaign, and this is something that I've been interested in forever. When I ran for office, when Gabby ran for office, we said that civility is a key foundation of what we're all about. And to conduct yourself in a civil manner, which means you don't threaten and harass, and we've seen harassment, particularly of election workers. Secure voting, people say voting's not secure. Arizona's been using mail-in ballots for at least three decades. And now about 85% of Arizonans vote that way. And people want to attack that system, which is really convenient and easy, particularly for people who are limited in their transportation abilities and all that. We want to make sure that that's supported. Fair oversight, we want them to, the parties to train poll workers to be fair and nonpartisan. And lastly, and this is the one that I think is probably the most critical of all, and that is we want trusted outcomes. So when a candidate gets to the end of the road and the election is called, if they disagree with the call, they're entitled to litigate, to go through the recount process if it's available. And then once that's over, the election is won or lost and you're supposed to accept the outcome. And that's what happened in your last election. It was 130 votes, I think. It was 163 votes. Initially, my opponent was ahead of me on election night that required an automatic uh, recount. And we had attorneys who came in to help us make sure it was done properly. And at the end, they, she actually gained three or four points. Um, so three or four votes. So with 167, I lost by in the end out of about 
quarter of a million votes. It was sad and disappointing, but to my way of thinking, you lose, you lose, and you say it. So I called up my opponent, uh, Arthur McSally, and I said, congratulations, I wish you all the best. That's what we want candidates to do. And because that has not been happening, we need to really push back in a significant way and say, saying you won when you clearly lost is not okay. We've got to adhere to a system where the losers admit to losing and the winners accept their win. And consider the candidates that already are on the record of saying if they lose, it will be because of fraud. Yeah. And so they won't accept it. This is before the election. So that's already set up. Yeah. And it should be noted that, that our work now is, is important for the midterm election coming up in November. But we're also intending to keep this project very much alive and well all the way through the next presidential election right. in 2024, when it may be even more important to do the work that we're doing today. Yeah, exactly. When the two of you are out spreading this message, are you finding differences? For example, Don, you're working in northern Arizona, Maricopa County, where the majority of Arizonans live, versus southern Arizona, Ron. Do you hear differences from the people based on geography? I'm not sure based on geography. I think our challenges are a little bit different in both locations. You know, we have to work a little harder to get more Republicans on board with what we're doing. And we have a fair amount on now. Moderate Republicans have come on board. Uh, so we're working a little bit harder along that effort. It's been an easier sell, perhaps, to, to the Democrats. But the key to our process is making sure it's totally cross-partisan. Uh, we're not endorsing candidates. We're not endorsing issues. We're not in the policy arena. We're simply all about safe, faith, secure elections. And we can find a lot of common elements with that in terms of both sides of the party. So we're working a little harder to get Republicans to sign on to that. Finding some success, but maybe that's a little harder in Maricopa than it is in Pima. Yeah, we do have some Republicans. One whose name I won't mention here because I don't have his permission is a very conservative Republican consultant who has worked on gubernatorial campaigns over the decades, well-respected in, in that party. And he believes that, the, as we do, that we've got to stand up for democracy. I mean, it's not a cliche to say that democracy is on the ballot this November, because it is. If some of the candidates who deny, one, that elections are won or lost, two, who believe that there's fraud everywhere, that local election officials are trying to pull a fast one, none of that is true. And we're very fortunate, particularly where Don lives up in Maricopa County, that we have a board of supervisors, which is four to one Republican, that when the audit started, they pushed back and they corrected the record and they stood by what they had done, which was to have clean, fair, and secure elections. We need more people to do that. And I just want to mention in both Maricopa and Pima County, we're going to be holding with help from the Arizona Daily Star and the Republic to have two public meetings. One in Tucson will be on October 20th, location yet to be discerned, determined. People can come in person, and we're also going to try to put it up virtually so a lot of people can participate. Because what we've learned is that people simply don't know how the election process works. And because when you don't know things, you can conjure up all kinds of nonsense and believe, believe conspiracy theories. So this is going to be one of our attempts to get the record straight and clear that elections are safe, secure, and fair. The event that we do in Maricopa with the Arizona Republic will be exactly that, trying to build confidence in the system so that people understand that it, that it's, that it is secure uh, and that they can believe in it. And ours is going to be probably just about a week before no, Election Day in November. So we want people, many of whom may have already voted, and that's not the point, but they need to know that their vote is going to go through a secure process. Yeah. 
as you said, this is a longer term project. You're fighting a two year narrative. What does, for lack of a better term, since we're talking about winners and losers, what does a win look like for this year's midterm election for your project? And what does a win look like for the project in two years during the presidential election? Well, one thing in particular is that we want to see candidates accept the results of the election this year. And as Don has mentioned, we already have some candidates running for statewide and legislative offices, and even school board offices mm -hmm. positions, who have said, you know, if I lose, it's fraud. Well, that's not, I mean, who believes that? Well, some people do, obviously. <laughs> A lot of people, unfortunately. But the truth of the matter is that there is no fraud. There's no proof of fraud from 2020 or even going all the way back. And I don't expect there would be any proof of fraud going forward. So what we really hope is that candidates will accept the outcome. That said, we know that certain people will not accept the outcome if they lose. So we hope that the process will be fair enough that the public in the, in the end will realize that they lost if that's the outcome of the election. So it's a public event, it's a public information issue as well as a candidate taking a, a position that's clear and fair and not crazy. <laughs> to be, you know, it's not a very scientific term, but it is nuts to have people say in advance of an election that if I lose, it's fraud. I mean, you have to be able to prove it, and so far nobody has. And building on that, uh, a win would be that there's nothing happens in terms of violence, that it's a peaceful process, that there's no problems that occur along that line. There's a lot of hate speech going on behind the scenes right now. There's poll workers who are concerned about their safety and security. It's getting harder to fill those jobs across all the counties throughout Arizona. So if we can get through this election with a peaceful process, that'll be a victory as well. Yeah, and our job is to stand up for those poll workers, the people who work the election day and the work in advance of it. Because, you know, in Pima County, for example, there will be sites where you can drive up and hand in your ballot. In other counties, they'll have drop boxes as well. There is a, an Oath Keeper group in Arizona that has said that they will be monitoring all drop-off sites. Hopefully it's not intimidation, but it could be intimidation, especially if people show up in long, with long guns and body armor to protect the integrity of the vote. I believe the local officials are about the integrity of the vote. So we're making sure that we work closely with law enforcement. I spoke recently with Sheriff Nanos about this so that we're on the same page in terms of the right kind of response from law enforcement, because an overreaction by law enforcement could be as dangerous as no reaction at all. Gentlemen, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thanks, it's really great to be able to talk about this and to get the word out. And I've enjoyed immensely working with my colleague from Scottsdale, Maricopa County. He's doing a great job and he's really a great ally in what we're trying to do, right Don? Totally agree, Ron. It's been a pleasure also working on this project with you. We're in it for the long haul, so we've got a couple more years of this to stay at it. So we've got work to do. So much for retirement. You know, <laughs> there are certain things that keep you from retiring and this for me is the thing. Okay. Great. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. That was Republican Don Henninger and former Democratic Congressman Ron Barber. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Zach Ziegler is our producer with production help from Samantha Larnett. 
Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.